Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our brand new Substack newsletter and website at LetItRollPodcast.com. We've got archives of every episode sorted by genre, era, guest, co-host, and miniseries. It's also a great way to support the show if you can afford it. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes back Mark Blake to discuss his new book, Us and Them, the authorized story of hypnosis, the visionary artist behind Pink Floyd, and more. Mark and Nate discuss the madcap artists behind the iconic album cover designs of Floyd, Led Zeppelin, and many more. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're welcoming back Mark Blake to talk about his new book, Us and Them, The Authorized Story of Hypnosis. Mark, welcome back. Hi there. Good to be back again. So this is a little bit different. We're talking about artists here. What's the connection of these guys to music? Well, hypnosis was a sort of art house. Um, it was two guys mainly, Storm Ferguson and Aubrey Powell. And their connection is they designed all the record sleeves or many of the record sleeves for Pink Floyd, many for Led Zeppelin, Paul McCartney and Wings, Black Sabbath, lots of bands all through the 1970s. They became the go-to guys for record sleeves and uh, they themselves have a fantastic story. So it was uh, it was what I wanted to do is to get that story down and tell it. Yeah, and it's an important story. And these guys, the ebb and flow between the creative principles here is so much like a rock band that I think our audience will totally relate um, to the power struggles between Storm and Poe. And it wasn't just power struggles. First, it's the synergy and this incredible teamwork. And they accomplished so much. I mean, Dark Side of the Moon, that's probably the most iconic album design of all time, they did it. Wish You Were Here, Houses of the Holy, Amagama, you know, uh, Black Sabbath, some of Black Sabbath's later stuff, Never Say Die, and, and uh, Technical Ecstasy, ACDC's Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap, all the, the, the classic early Peter Gabriel albums with the really notable covers. So I think it's a really key part of the story. And there's a quote at the beginning from Roger Waters that says, when you bought a long plain vinyl record, you studied the sleeve, you read the lyrics, you looked at the pictures and you went, wow. Tell us about this era. Like, I mean, just just for people who missed the vinyl era, just what's the difference between buying a record at a record store in the 1970s versus like streaming a bunch of uh, playlists on Spotify? 
Well, I think what hypnosis were brilliant at doing is it was a piece of marketing, really. That's not a very sexy word, but, you know, it is art, but it was marketing. They marketed bands in the case of Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin that didn't do singles, not in the UK anyway. These groups weren't on TV. Like you say, it was pre the era of streaming. So if you wanted to know what a group sounded like, you had to listen to a record. And here in the UK, this stuff wasn't even played on the radio. So how the record looked was really important to whether to making you buy the records and this isn't an exact science and record companies and storm Ferguson and poe drove themselves mad i think over the years working out how much a record sleeve had to do with the sales of an album no one can say for certain but it it definitely had a lot to do with it it was a it was a shop window for the bands and you know, I used to go to record shops, secondhand record shops as a young teenager. And I, you know, you could lose an hour in there looking through deciding what you were going to spend your money on. Um, it Everything had to be sought out. It wasn't available at the click of a mouse like it is now. Yeah, absolutely. And those records, I can remember there would be kind of record listening parties and people would gather around and pass the record mm. sleeve back and forth and just pour over the lyrics. And it wasn't like today when you had Wikipedia at your fingertips and you knew everything about a band in five minutes. I mean, people were desperately trying to piece together clues from these really pretty cryptic yeah. album covers and fig figure out who these people were. But how did these guys get started? Because the connection with pink floyd and and not just roger waters and david gilmore but also sid barrett the original founder and lead singer songwriter of the first album of pink floyd tell us about storm and poe in cambridge and this sort of i mean it's almost arcadian i mean it seems like such a blissful childhood or teenage period along the river cam it's almost like a dr seuss book the river solace <laughs> or something tell us what what was their childhood like and how did they get so tight with the the founding members of pink floyd well, well cambridge is a great is a great town great city and is a, a world famous university there um i mean david gilmore's father worked at the university sid barrett's father was involved with university roger waters his mother was a teacher there's a lot of academia in that town you know and that i think created an environment in which artistic people could flourish um i don't know how much again i don't know how much of it had to do with it but what was interesting is these guys it's an accident of birth really these guys sort of grew up in the 50s post-war britain coming out of the second world war um new ideas a more liberal thinking there was a lot of exciting things happening in literature and film and music and they were just the right age group to really tap into this and being in a town like cambridge it was all available to them they you know it was it was there so they were quite a precocious group of young people especially storm forgerson storm's father had left the family home he lived with his mother his mother taught art and pottery she was very liberal quite bohemian um you know he had the run of the family house it was just him and his mum in there Poe was at a boarding school just outside Cambridge. He got expelled when he was 16 and he winds up living on his own as a 16, 17 year old in, in a little kind of lodging house around the corner from Storm. And he was introduced to him. And what they had in common was a shared interest in music and art and literature, smoking marijuana. 
And that's how it came together. And Sid Barrett was in this social group. David Gilmore was. Roger Waters had gone to school with Storm. He played rugby with Storm. They were all part of this crowd growing up in this interesting town. But, you know, I, I'm trying to find an equivalent in the United States, but it's like it was a hip place to be. You know, if you went to a little village somewhere a few miles down the road from Cambridge, it might not be quite the same. Um, they they were lucky. It was a, it was a, an accident of birth, I think. Yeah, I can't really think of anything comparable in the United States. I mean, there's university towns, but the mm. the real marquee universities, Harvard, our own Cambridge, um, Massachusetts, it's just a very different city. It's it's not it doesn't have that bucolic edge. You can't just hop down to the river cam and, and start yeah. rowing a boat that's or... right you could do all that here you know it, there's a beautiful river that runs through this runs through the city and they all used to sort of sit around on the banks you know young david gilmore and the young sid barrett and all these beautiful girlfriends they had <laughs> and so like you say bucolic is a is a word i mean it wasn't like that every day I'm, we, we we're kind of exaggerating a bit but there was definitely an element of that to it yeah, and they weren't just smoking marijuana. They were into hallucinogens very early. I mean, years yeah. before, say, the Beatles were. How did that happen? I, I, this is the thing. And when you talk to these guys now, their their peer group, these are men in their 70s, their grandparents and so on, who had this very kind of quite profound drug experience when they were 15, 16 years of age, before the Beatles were talking about it. And I mean, you know, I think 1965 is when they first tried LSD. Not all of them, but some of them. And at that point in time, there isn't a lot of reference to what's going to happen. If you took LSD a few years later, you knew what the Beatles had done. You knew what Sid Barrett had done. People had talked about it. That doesn't mean there wasn't misinformation, but it was a real leap into the unknown, I think, in 1965, 66. So, yeah, again, it comes back to that word precocious. They had this sort of LSD experience, which I think influenced some of the covers that they did going forward. But again, it's it's all part of this this whole experience. I mean, they really were quite. Uh, I I mean, I don't know. David Gilmore, when I spoke to him for the book, said to me, "Oh, you know, this is just how we were. This is just how I grew up. This is the only life I've known." But I think if you're looking in from the outside and a different generation, it it seems quite out there, definitely. Yes, it does. Let's hear our first song. This is a track, the final track off the first album cover that Hypnosis did for Pink Floyd's Oscar Full of Secrets. This is Sid Barrett's last contribution to the band, Jug Band Blues, and this is about as far out as you can get. That was Sid Barrett's final tune with Pink Floyd Jug Band Blues. And, you know, it's just a kind of a testimony to what happens when you go so far out and can't come back. And and Sid Barrett tragically took it as far as you could go and and never really returned. And um, but how did they get how did they go from being fun, creative, unchanneled? youth because you know in this group you had future rock stars you had future successful artists 
you also had people who never quite found their way who were quite as brilliant as the other uh, other youths that were involved in this, you know, but one of one of their friends ends up running in front of a train a few years later. Sid Barrett obviously spends most of his life in seclusion, battling mental illness. How did they make the transition? Because neither of these guys could draw or really were particularly gifted photographers. How did they become album artists? Well, they moved to London. Uh, Storm got a place at the Royal College of Art, which is a very distinguished uh, school. And he had to study film and television, though, not art. But he was at the, the RCA along with a couple of their other friends. And they all got an apartment together in South Kensington. And Poe didn't want to be left behind. So Poe came down uh, to London with them. But I mean, obviously, Poe wasn't a student. Um, he'd managed to talk his way into a job set designing for TV shows here. But he was quite underqualified for that. Uh, and he eventually got sort of found out, so to speak. Storm opposed a couple of years younger than Storm, and I think initially was sort of riding on his coattails. But what happened is David Gilmore moved to London. David Gilmore joins Pink Floyd to take over from Sid Barrett. And you mentioned Source of Secrets, the second album. That's sort of that was the beginning of their their journey as record sleeve designers. It really was a question of the case of them putting their hand up and going, "Hey, David, why can't we design your sleeve?" And him going, "Okay," and talking to the others and going, "Yeah." So it was it, it was they had no experience, but they had all the confidence and the the blagging abilities, as we say here. They were you know good hustlers. Yes, indeed. And before we get too far ahead, I want to backtrack a little bit because Poe in particular had some legal difficulties and and could easily have gone to prison. What's the story with that? Well, I mean, he was he'd been kicked out of school when he was 16, 17. And as I said, he was he was living in London design. He was working designing film sets, but he was running around with a, a crowd. Shall we say a bad he'd fallen in with a bad crowd, separate from the bad crowd he was already in with. But these guys were stealing cars and getting into all sorts of stuff. And when the first credit cards came out, bank cards. They got involved, a group of them, I think it was five or six of them, got involved in a credit card fraud. You know, they basically were paying students to open up bank accounts, then report the card stolen. And in the meantime, they, they'd rinse the uh, banks for a few hundred pounds. I mean, you could do this kind of thing in 1967. You know, there was no CCTV. There was no identity checks. It, different world. Archaic. Anyway, they got caught and they went to the Old Bailey they were up for the Old Bailey Court, which is a, a serious criminal court here in London, and they managed to get away with it partly because they were they were privately school educated boys. They came from supposedly good families. Poe's father was in the military, uh, but it scared the life out of him. I mean, he talks very openly about this in the book. It really freaked him out, and that on top of the LSD experience, the amount of marijuana they were smoking. He said to me, you know, he felt very frayed by 1967, 68 after going through that. And I think it was a profound change. He taught himself to become a photographer. He learned how to take photos. And I, I think it was a sense of I need a direction in life. Otherwise, I, I don't want to end up going to prison. You know, I want to do something with my life. Um, so I think, you know, hypnosis came along at just the right time. Yeah, it certainly did. And speaking of hypnosis, how did they get that name? Yeah, it was hip, H-I-P-G-N-O-S-I-S. And they 
came across it scrawled on the door of their apartment in 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 South Kensington. And they, well, they were quite cross about it, you know, because someone had basically graffitied the door. Now, the popular story and the one that they've told over the years is that Sid Barrett did this. But somebody else that lives that lived with them at the time is adamant it wasn't Sid Barrett. It was actually somebody else. It was a poet who happened to be a friend of theirs who'd, who'd drawn it on the door. But I think the idea of saying Sid, Sid Barrett had done it probably sounded better. So good story is a good story. But, you know, that's where they got it from, hip. So it's fashionable, chic, Gnostic, suggests knowledge. I mean, it's a great name, I think. Um and then, yeah, that's what they that's what they decided to run with. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a brilliant name with gnosis meaning secret knowledge and hip meaning ahead of the crowd or or whatever. But let's talk about some of their first notable album covers, like the Amagama album by Pink Floyd. This is you know Sid Barrett and leads Pink Floyd to the top of the pop charts with "See Emily Play" and then and then flames out pretty promptly thereafter, and they're able to really thrive for several albums before they figure out how to write songs. And we talked about this in our Pink Floyd episode, but so they're, they're moving units right from the get, but an album like Amagama, I mean, just tell us about that cover. It's this incredible album cover that you can spend hours and hours looking at. And I imagine if you were stoned, like so many other audience was at the time, you could really, really yeah. get yourself lost in this thing. That's right. I mean, it's a, it was an effect. They call, it was called the Drost effect because there was a, a brand of cocoa powder here called Drost. Um, I think it was a Dutch company and basically has a picture of a woman holding a tray or uh, holding a tray with the coke, tin of the powder, the cocoa powder on the tray. So of course, it's a picture within a picture within a picture because the image is repeated and repeated. And that's what they did with this. You've got the band sitting uh, in the doorway of Storm's girlfriend's father's house out in Cambridge, uh, on the outskirts of Cambridge, this lovely sort of country house. And you've got David Gilmore sat there and you've got the band behind him. And then there's a photograph, a photograph framed picture on the wall. And it's the same image repeated within itself, but with different band members in different places. I mean, this was this was far out for 1969. You know, it's uh, it, it it was something more than just sticking a photograph of a band on on the cover, which is what a lot of pop groups did at the time. I mean, I I remember when I first saw that cover, I was quite fascinated by it, and that was many years after it had come out. I mean, you could argue it's probably a, a little bit more exciting cover than some of the music inside. I mean, you mentioned before that. They took a long time to learn how to write songs, and I think in they they themselves have said the same thing. This was the experimental late sixties progressive rock era, the beginnings of that, and so but, you know they had the freedom to go and do a piece of music that lasted twenty minutes, uh, you know, piano concerto, a drum concerto, all of this stuff's on on Amagama, but the sleeve is definitely the most fascinating thing about it, I think. Yeah, and then they and then they strike again with Adam Hart Mother, which is a very very different concept visually. I mean, totally different. You wouldn't think it was the same designers at all. Um, uh, Steph tells me I got a cue before I pass um, uh, to the next question. So let's go ahead and hear. This is a, a song from Wishbone Ash, which is a group you don't hear a lot about these days, but they pretty much pioneered the twin lead guitar, harmonized lead guitar thing that the Allman Brothers and Judas Priest and Thin Lizzy and others and Iron Maiden would would make a staple of rock guitar playing. And the album cover that they that Hypnosis did for Wishbone Ash had even bigger 
cultural implications, and we'll talk about that after we hear this sample. This is Time Was from the Argus album by Wishbone Ash. a little bit of the guitar freakout styling of Wishbone Ash, an Overlook band from the late 60s, early 70s that that did make their mark. And we'll talk about that album cover in a, in a second. But first, I want to get back to Adam Hart Mother. What were they confronted with? And well, what is the cover? And how did they end up not just designing the cover, but even naming the album? Yeah, it's a it's it's a cow. It's a photograph of a cow in a field, and the idea was to do something that was as uncosmic as you could possibly get, because obviously things like Amagama, Sorcerer of Secrets, they've got that slight sort of strange, surreal science fiction connection. So they decided to do something that was just totally, if you like, prosaic, and the most obvious thing they could think of was a cow. But on top of that, the idea was not to have the name of the album and not to have the name of the band. Uh, at all on the cover and that in itself was just considered absolutely outrageous at the time they got into a lot of trouble with emi records for this but pink floyd stuck with them pink floyd loved the idea um and and so that's how it happened and when the album the album went to number one uh, you know and again i think the cow had a lot to do with that yeah it's a very visually striking cover with the black and white cow and the blue sky and the green grass and and it it this sort of begs the question, what's in this record? And, and you know, a lot of people, it's really hard to relate to that period. I mean, this, these are albums that almost in any other time in musical history would have been definitively uncommercial. And yet at the time, it just moved units. People really wanted to hear spaced out jams uh, in that era. And they were perfect. And, and they, you know, put the perfect cherry on top with that album cover, or maybe even more than the cherry. I mean, it's like a doorway into that album that 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 drew people in and made it something that storekeepers wanted to feature in their shops, put it in the windows, put it on the front display, have, you know, multiple copies of it behind the, the counter over the till, you know, just just this was a time when album art really did sell the units. But now let's talk about Argus, because if if you haven't heard of Wishbone Ash, and you Google Wishbone Ash Argus, you're going to see what seems to be a very familiar design on the cover, a helmet that's massively recognized. But this was before Star Wars. What's what's on the cover? What's the connection? Well, Wishbone Ash, Wishbone Ash were, were a big band here, and they did actually sell records in America in the 70s. But like you said earlier, they're one of these groups that, that have kind of fallen off the radar a little bit now. The album Argus was their third album. And they decided to do something with slightly science fiction-y. Basically, they, Hypnosis dressed up their studio assistant, uh, whose name was Bruce Atkins, dressed him up in uh, a helmet and a cape, which they bought, borrowed from a costumier's here in London. He's standing on the edge 
of what is meant to be a cliff. They film this out. They photographed this out in France, um, looking up at the sky, and they put, dropped in a picture of a flying saucer. If you open the whole gatefold out, you've got a flying saucer on the other side. Now, you know, it's an Argus. He's a sentinel. He's looking into the future or whatever you want to do. It totally suits the music. That, again, was a big cover. I remember seeing that and thinking, wow, what does, what does his record sound like? What's interesting about that is years, it's a few years later, obviously in Star Wars, you've got Darth Vader. And when I was interviewing uh, Bruce Atkins, who's the guy in the cape, the guy dressed as Argus, he said to me when he went to see Star Wars, and others have commented on this, the first thing he thought when he saw Darth Vader with the cape and the helmet was that's Wishbone Ash Argus. Um, you know, I have no idea if the makers of Star Wars ever saw that cover Maybe they did, maybe they didn't, but it's a lovely idea. And it does. I mean, at the time when I first saw it, it was probably around the time Star Wars was coming out. So I can't remember if I made the connection or not. But uh, yeah, it's it's it, there's definitely something there, definitely a similarity. And and this might not be the shoot that I'm, I might have the shoots confused, but this practice, you know, they borrowed this historic helmet from a museum or something, but they had also, in this shoot or another shoot, had borrowed a sword from That's Roman right. Polanski. Yes, yeah, this like, one. It's this yeah, one. yeah. tell the story of the sword well, that the they sword, borrowed from Roman Polanski. They wanted to have Polanski. a sword as well. Yeah, they wanted to have a sword. They borrowed the sword from director Roman Polanski, which he just used in a film called the... Um, I can't remember. I think it was from Macbeth. He made a movie version of Macbeth. So they get this sword, which they had to have insured. They, they travelled to France on a train with a huge sort of uh, crate of all these uh, props. They get to France, they're driving around in a hire car, they can't find the right place to shoot the lo- to do the location. They're worried that the cape the guy's wearing isn't long enough, and they can see his, uh, you know, his sneakers, which of course would rather ruin the idea that he's <laughs> a sentinel from another time or planet. So they have to shoot it in a certain way. Anyway, they look at the sword, they decide the sword looks too cheesy, looks too much like King Arthur, which is which is a big mythology, big myth here in the UK. Um, so they go for a spear instead. He's holding a spear, isn't he, in the cover? Then they leave, they lose the sword. Now, there's some suggestions. They like to tell people the sword was stolen, but I was talking to Poe's wife, ex-wife, who was also on that shoot. And I was talking to Bruce, the guy in the cape. He said to me, and he said, no, we just forgot the sword. They left it propped up against the side of the road. And they drove home. They drove back to the train, get the train, get back, realise they've lost Roman Polanski's sword. Um, of course, he went crazy and they managed to claim it on the insurance. They blamed it on British Rail that they lost the sword on the train. So it, this is one of the undercurrents of this with this story. As great as these covers are and they have these amazing, ambitious ideas, there's always a margin for human error. Um, and it doesn't matter if you're Pink Floyd or Led Zeppelin or who you're doing it for, things can go wrong, you know, <laughs> even yeah. then. Mm. Yeah, the ambition is amazing. Let's take a quick sponsor break. and When we come back, we'll talk about some of their other outlandishly ambitious shoot attempts. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, 
Even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And so another thing I found really fascinating reading this book was you, you constantly have to remind the reader that there was no Photoshop, that everything that you saw had to be produced in real life. I mean, there were certain things you could do in post-production, but you'd be doing it with scissors and tape and, and you know, very difficult to, to, to modify images. And these were guys like one of their first shoots was going out into the Saharan desert Mm. Tell us about that shoot. And, yeah, and- it's from a band called The Nice. It was an album called Elegy by The Nice, uh, one of whom became Emerson in Emerson, Lake and Palmer, another huge band in the 70s here. And they decided they wanted to photograph. Storm had had a dream of red footballs in a desert in sand dunes disappearing over the horizon in a sort of swirling line. He dreamt this up while he was listening to the album. So they went to the record company and said, we want to go, we want to photograph footballs in the desert and you're going to pay for it. And they said, well, where where are you going to go? What beach? Thinking it would be a beach here in the UK, Brighton Beach. And they said, no, we want to go to Morocco. We want to go to Sahara. And they paid for it. The record company paid for it. And this is in 1970, 71. They went, yeah, great idea. You know, go ahead and do it. And of course, they take, I think it was 130 deflated footballs with them out to the Sahara Desert, but with one bicycle pump. So, of course, you know, trying to pump up 130 footballs with one bicycle pump isn't going to work. Again, human error creeps in here. They managed <laughs> to get them. They managed to get them inflated. They're in a village somewhere, and I think the Bedouin locals were paid to inflate these footballs overnight. Cover looks amazing, far more exciting and interesting than the music, I have to say. But it, it was the beginning. It was, that was the first time anyone had paid for for artists to go out and do something like that on a record cover to actually have a trip to create a piece of land art. Um, and as you said before, you couldn't do you could do this in five minutes now on Photoshop, but you couldn't then. They actually went out there and did it. And um, 
you know, they got into all kinds of scrapes. They ended up getting arrested. They lost the key to the hotel. They had to sell the footballs to get themselves out of Morocco. There's a whole whole tale in the book. But it's, again, it's that idea. I think what it is, when I spoke to a lot of musicians for this, they liked the ambition and the daringness of it because they saw themselves as artists, as experimental. They liked the fact that these guys were willing to go and do something as outlandish as that. Of course, they were paying for it, but they kidded themselves into the idea the record company was paying. But, (laughs) of course, the expense is always going to be offset against the band somewhere down the line. But it worked. And that became that became their thing. You know, we go on location and we do these amazing covers. But not every cover was so amazing. Tell us about the muddle album for Pink Med- Floyd. Yeah, Pink Floyd Medal. I mean, as a kid, I saw this and I had no idea what this was. I then discovered it was an ear. It's the inside of an ear underwater. And believe it or not, there is or was such a thing as ear models. They they you know auditioned people that had good looking ears. Um <laughs> Then they photographed the ear underwater. But what happened with this very abstract looking image? And what happened is a storm, when I interviewed Storm a few years ago, Storm's dead now. He's not, he's not with us anymore. But Storm said to me, he was discussing the cover idea with Roger Waters, but Pink Floyd were in Japan. So a, tra- a, a, a telephone line, a landline from Japan to London in 1971 was not great. You know, we didn't we didn't have Zoom and Skype, did we, in those days? So He misheard, and I'm not quite sure what Roger Waters said he wanted, but he ended up with an ear underwater. So that's that's it. And, of course, by that time, it's too late to go back. Um, You know, I I I spoke to Nick Mason, the drummer of Pink Floyd, for this, and he he sort of conceded that it probably wasn't one of Hypnosis's better ideas. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's uh, and and, and that album, ironically, is is when Pink Floyd's really starting to come into their own. It's a great record. Yeah, they started to write songs then, aren't they? You know, it's good stuff. Mm. Yeah. And so so it's kind of funny that they that Hypnosis missed on, on that album, but they quickly regain their feet and and get a new marquee client um with with led zeppelin and their relationship with led zeppelin is very different from their relationship with pink floyd and and i was kind of I'll, I'll ask more about it but tell us about the relationship with led zeppelin and which one of the partners was the closest to led zeppelin and how did, how was it to work with peter grant versus working uh with with pink floyd and their team well, Led Zeppelin came to uh, came to hypnosis because they loved the cover of the Wishbone Ash album, Argus. And they said, can you do something for us? And they were, were great. They went along. And the album in question was House of the Holy, which has just turned, I think, 50, hasn't it, this year? Or, yeah. yeah. And that was the first album they did for them. Now, what they ended up with was uh, a photograph of children climbing over the rocks of a place called Giant's Causeway in Northern Ireland. Again, this is another shoot. They had to go away and do this. I had to bring a family and bring the kids out there. They spent days in Northern Ireland on a sort of windswept coast in November 1972, freezing cold. Um, Northern Ireland had a lot of civil unrest at the time. There were bombs going off. People resented the British being there. So it was not a, a stable or happy place to be, but they went there just to shoot an album cover. Now, the guy that did this was Poe because Storm kind of annoyed Led Zeppelin's manager, Peter Grant, who was a very imposing figure, um, and he also annoyed Jimmy Page. Um, One of the issues quite early on in the relationship that triggered this was that Storm had shown Led Zeppelin some ideas for covers, and one of them was a, a tennis racket. 
Uh, and the idea being, I mean, I, I interviewed Jimmy Page of Led Zeppelin for this, and 50 years on, he's still moaning about it. He's still smarting. <laughs> he said to me, I was outraged. I said, what, what is the significant of a t- significance of a tennis racket? Storm told him it's a racket. Your music is a racket, which means a noise here. That's a, it's a slang expression for noisy. You're making a racket. And Jimmy kind of threw him out. He said, look, off, go, you know, dismissed. Get Poe <laughs> po in here. So from then on, Poe dealt with them. So Storm had a lot to do with those covers in terms of ideas for Led Zeppelin. But... Because Storm was a more antagonistic character, he wasn't as diplomatic as Poe is. That was part of who he was. He was a difficult artiste, if you like. So from then on, Poe dealt with Peter Grant uh, and with Zeppelin. But of course, as I said before, Peter Grant was this huge kind of man-mountain figure. Literally, Physically, he looked like a giant, looked like an ogre. Um, people were generally terrified of him. He built a, a wall around Led Zeppelin so no one could get close. So, But he took Poe under his wing, and uh, it was the beginning of a very successful, very fruitful relationship with Led Zeppelin. I think they, I think Hypnosis did some of their best work for Zeppelin, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and let's go ahead and hear our next song. I'm afraid to sample any snippets of Led Zeppelin, so forgive me. We're going to use uh, <laughs> Peter Gabriel Salisbury Hill, which uh, from his series of solo albums of the same name, or Peter Gabriel was the name of the album. And that was Salisbury Hill from Peter Gabriel's album of self-titled album, Peter Gabriel, one of three that he put out in a row called Peter Gabriel. Um, but before we move on from Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd, there's something that, that you didn't quite make clear in the book that I wanted to ask you about. And and you you were, you you say many times that there's a, a big lifestyle difference between Poe and Storm at the peak of their powers. Storm had become a single father and is basically still living in the same garret very near their, their filthy, squalid uh, studio. <laughs> and is living this very humble life. And Poe, meanwhile, is jet-setting and has places in Miami. At one point, he's off to Rio for the weekend. Was this because Led Zeppelin was paying them a lot more than Pink Floyd, or Poe was much more attuned to how much money they were bringing in and Storm wasn't paying attention? What explains that big lifestyle? I think I, I think Poe was much more attuned to making money, um, and he was better at spending, better at making money and spending money. But I mean, everything they made went to the company, regardless of who, who did what. I mean, how can I put this? I think Poe maybe sailed a little closer to the wind, as we say. <laughs> <laughs> In terms, you know, read if you read the book, you may pick up vibes. He was living in Miami. I mean, that was uh, quite a lawless town in the 1970s. He got a little place in Miami, mainly because he was doing so much work in America. Um, you know, Poe was very good at making money. Storm was notoriously bad with money and quite an, unambitious in some ways. Like you say, he lived in the same apartment for years. He was bringing up his son. 
Um, yeah, their lifestyle went a different ways. I mean, there was a lot, you mentioned earlier, they live like rock stars. I mean, there was a lot of comparisons with rock stars here in terms of the artistic differences and the push and pull between the two of them, a bit like Page and Plant in Zeppelin or Gilmore and Waters in, in, in Pink Floyd. But also they enjoyed the largesse. I mean, trips on Concord, staying in the best hotels, a lot of drugs had crept into the picture by then. There was a lot of cocaine around, especially in Miami, where, where Poe was living. For, for most of the years in the late 70s, early 80s, things kind of happened. And yes, they, they definitely grew apart. And for some reason, Poe seemed to have more money than, than Storm did. And I'll, I'll let you work that out for yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, starting, I'm starting to do some of the math here. It's, it's very interesting. But let's talk about their greatest hits real quick, though. The, 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 the run of albums that they designed in, in the mid-70s is pretty much the heart of of their body of work and what they're mostly remembered for. And I'm talking about the classic covers for Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon, and Wish You Were Here, and then the two late period albums for Led Zeppelin, Presence, and In Through the Outdoor. Tell us about Dark Side of the Moon, and did they really just take a picture out of a textbook for that? Yes, they did. It was a physics textbook. It's called The Wonder Book of Light and Color, which Storm happened to have a copy of. They kept lots of strange books and comics and magazines, anything that they liked the look of. Uh, Pink Floyd had asked for something simple and graphic. Storm got very cross about that um, because he didn't like being told what to do. And they came up with the idea of the, the prism and the, the light going through it and the rainbow. I mean, if you see the original book, that is pretty much Dark Side of the Moon. They got their designer, uh, their illustrator, George Hardy, who did a lot of fabulous work for them. I should add, Hypnosis had great people around them, freelance illustrators, retouchers and, and, and photographers, all sorts of stuff. And George drew that beautiful uh, image and Pink Floyd loved it. Everything else that they'd suggested got rejected. And as you said at the beginning, it became, I would say, the most famous album cover in the world. Yeah, no doubt about that. And then tell us about Wish You Were Here. I mean, this is another mm. one of their insanely ambitious shoots they've literally set a man on fire for that they set a man on fire in yeah in a, a film lot in burbank it was a stuntman who'd previously been in a movie called the towering inferno which was a, a huge film in the early 70s i remember going to cinema to see that as a kid um it was one of four images on that that we used on the cover all of which most of which were done in california on location the idea was it was a burning businessman you're getting burned by the business because there was an element of that in the songs um but yeah they they, the two guys shaking hands, one of them was on fire. And there was a, shortly after the picture was taken, a little gust of breeze came across the film lot and the fire whipped round, uh, set his moustache on fire. And, you know, he had to be smothered with blankets and sprayed with fire extinguishers. You know, it was quite a daring shoot and a dangerous shoot, you know, at the, at the time. Again, you could do that now with Photoshop. You could put the flames on yourself. Um, but no, they, they did it for real. And, and, and the guy nearly killed the guy. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's the, the, the risks they were taking in this period. Uh, there's also an incredible story about a trip to the Alps to take a picture for wings, greatest hits where they, you know, jumping out of a helicopter onto a steep mountainside, dropping this very heavy Hindu statue out the helicopter and propping it up, you know, and then they get it all done. And Paul McCartney says, you know, you could have done that in the studio with the backdrop. <laughs> I know. It's, it's just crazy. And you could. And, and it's weird because I remember seeing that Wings Greatest Hits in all the record shops. I saw that cover everywhere. It never once occurred to me. And it didn't occur to me until I was doing this book that they'd actually gone to the Alps to photograph it. Yeah. I just, I just thought it was a, a, a shitty looking statue <laughs> on a white 
background. <laughs> I don't think it's one of, I don't think that's one of their best works. But I love I absolutely love the fact that they went to all that trouble to get the picture. Yeah, it's it's very classic. And let's quickly talk about presence and in through the outdoor and the, and the work they did for Zeppelin in this period. Yeah, sure. I mean, well, presence and in through the outdoor. These aren't necessarily the most well-known albums that that that, uh, that Zeppelin did. I think they're both. I mean, presence. I think is a fantastic album. I mean, the cover is a bizarre mix of it, it's photographs. I think out of Life magazine or National Geographic from the 1950s. Sort of family scenes, people playing golf, people sitting around the house listening to records, and they've dropped in what is known as the black object, which is just a strange, slightly phallic-looking black object. Um, there's some suggestion it's a sort of porthole there's some suggestion that every house has to have one of these things as a kind of energy source no one has explained what it's meant to be I've seen the letter or the, the notes that Storm wrote about it it was obviously something he cooked up in his head so it's I just think it's a peculiar cover what I love about it it's got nothing to do with heavy metal or heavy rock if you look at what other bands were putting on the cover at that time, Black Sabbath, perhaps, you know, you know, demons flying around, a witch going through a graveyard, that kind of stuff. This has nothing to do with heavy rock, but it's one of the heaviest records Zeppelin ever, ever made. Um, I think In Through the Outdoor was the last Zeppelin album, and I think the cover's far more interesting than the record. I think Zeppelin were kind of on last knockings by then, as we say. There's a lot of drug problems in the band, but they, Storm and Poe, built a replica of a bar in new york in new orleans they'd seen a bar in new orleans it looked amazing with all these business cards and pictures stuck to the, the walls and the ceilings and they photographed that scene from six different angles from the angle there's a guy sitting at the bar uh there's a woman standing by the jukebox there's a barman looking at and they've got you've got six different images it's like a movie scene and when i first saw that cover i was absolutely fascinated by it because I just thought, what does this mean? What it looks like a still from a from a film. What was even better is they put the whole cover in a in a brown paper bag, um, which was some kind of insane idea that Peter Grant had to prove that Led Zeppelin could sell records even in a paper bag. But of course, what they ended up doing was hiding all this beautiful artwork. But of course, you that meant you didn't know which one of the six covers you were going to get when you went to buy it. So again, it's another brilliant piece of marketing. Yeah, I remember comparing uh, a friend of mine and I both had the Halloween. We had different covers, and that really blew our minds. And, and, yeah, and there was I mean. much, much discussion of that. But uh, let's go ahead and hear our last song. This is ACDC, Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap, from the album of the same name, featuring a hypnosis cover, of course. And that was the great Bond Scott leading ACDC through Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap. And I want to talk about the third partner in hypnosis, Peter Christofferson, who's frankly more known to me for his work with Throbbing Gristle and Coil than he is for his album cover work. How did he come, come into the group? How did he become a partner? And what did he contribute uh, to hypnosis that the other guys did not? 
Well, Peter, Peter was younger. He was, he was almost a generation younger than them. He was brilliant with photography, brilliant darkroom guy. He was great at lighting film sets as well. And, and you know, Storm and Poe weren't good at this stuff. So he showed them photographs he had of naked bodies that had been beautifully, artfully lit. And they were very impressed by this. And so they gave him a, they gave him a job and eventually made him a partner. Um, one of the things about Peter is Peter's interests were very, very left field. He was he was gay, which they didn't care about at all. But his his sexual proclivities were quite left field. I think we can safely say. He later revealed that the photos he'd shown Storm Poe of the artfully lit uh, naked bodies were were dead bodies. He somehow had access to a morgue, uh, to a mortuary, <laughs> and. Whether this is true or not, this has been disputed by other people, but there's a subversive element to what Peter did. And again, he was a brilliant foil for Storm Poe. He brought a different sensibility to what they did. If you look at some of the artwork he did later on for Wishbone Ash and for some of the heavy metal bands, a band called UFO, that were very big here for a while, he did these slightly off-kilter sort of homoerotic images and he did it without the bands themselves being aware of it and i think when i spoke to one of his bandmates in in throbbing gristle they said that that was his thing he wanted to subvert things he wanted to be subversive he saw storm and poe as being old older hippies he was very clued into the punk movement he was very aware of what was going on with that stuff in london in, in the late 70s so he, he was kind of like a trojan horse in a way he was working for these very very huge these huge traditional rock bands zeppelin floyd i mean he worked on wish you were here that was one of his as well um but you know if he had any opportunity to sneak anything in that was a bit kinky or strange he would he would do so um he did some fantastic work for them I mean, you mentioned throbbing gristle i mean th- th- that band were incredibly left field electronic group i mean they come from a performance art background they were pushing all sorts of boundaries in terms of performance sexually on every conceivable level i mean there were questions asked in the houses of parliament here about one of their performances because it was considered obscene so you've got this very strange little guy working doing album covers for genesis and pete frampton people very mainstream (laughs) mainstream artists and uh but as you said he he never advertised it he didn't discuss it it was like a he kept his life compartmentalized and Years later, he never discussed hypnosis. Long after he'd left the company and the company had broken up, he he just he concentrated on the here and now. But you know, hypnosis was funding his music for many many years. Yeah, and and tell us about that breakup. What what ended hypnosis, and and how what did the partners do after they parted ways? Well, it was Storm and Peter Christopherson presented said to Poe, "We should wind the company down." This was in 1982. The argument was they'd gone as far as they could go with album covers. And, you know, that that was it. The CD was coming in, the compact disc was coming in. Um, It was time to do something different. Also, MTV had launched in the States, and they were aware that record company money that was previously for albums was going to, to make music videos. So they decided to become a video company, and they were able to do that quite successfully for about five or six years. They made, they made millions. Um, they did a lot of big videos for bands at the time, and then eventually they fell out over money. Storm 
was a sort of frustrated filmmaker and spent overspent hugely on the budgets, even in even by mid 80s standards, when budgets were astronomical, Storm went too far. You know, he took his ambition to the next level. And uh, when that happened, Storm and Poe fell, fell out and didn't speak to each other, I think, for about 11 or 12 years. Wow. That's a classic rock band breakup. It's, it's a classic rock band breakup. And they did they did make friends again and they did do books together again. But it's a bit like they never quite re they didn't reform like uh, the Who or, or something like that. They they never got back together and worked together on album covers again. I mean, they both went off and made films. Poe worked Poe made documentaries and films. He worked for Paul McCartney. Storm went back to doing album sleeve art in the 90s and 2000s and was still working up until um, until he died in 2013. But, uh, yeah, they never worked together again. And one last business decision that Storm made was to essentially give away the name Hypnosis. And people who follow the news and music publishing have probably heard that name. Suddenly, Hypnosis is acquiring these song catalogs uh, from, you know, classic rock artists for a lot of money. How did that happen, and what what was Poe's take on that? Uh, I think surprised. <laughs> <laughs> well, Merck Macuriadis, who who owns Hypnosis Songs and is the boss of that, Merck, who I spoke to for the book, was a huge Storm Ferguson fan, huge fan of Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd, loved Hypnosis, got to know Storm, ended up sort of unofficially managing Storm, and, and Storm was doing covers for some of Merck's bands when he was starting out in the industry. and he said, hey, I'm launching this song, you know, this this company to acquire catalogs and songs. Hey, I'd love to call it Hypnosis. Uh, this is the story I got. And Storm kind of later on presented him with a load of ideas and a price tag for designs of these ideas. For, he said, I've designed you a logo. You can use the name. But obviously he paid for the logos that he used. But he, um, yeah, Poe wasn't best pleased by it at all. No. I think it's safe to say because yeah. Poe. I should I, I should clarify. Poe owned the name Hypnosis. Um, Storm didn't want to be a company director in the seventies for some reason. We can't quite get to the bottom of why. So technically, although Hypnosis wasn't active anymore, the name did belong to Poe. But it's ended up being used for the you know Hypnosis songs funds, like like you say. Um, it's it's a murky it's a murky area. But then, like a lot of aspects of this story, it's. Uh, yeah, people didn't always do the right thing. <laughs> That's for sure. It reminds me of the battles between Apple Music and Apple Computer over that trademark. It seems like once yeah. you let, yeah, uh, you know, somebody use a name, they're gonna they're gonna run with it. Well, Mark, this has been great. The book is Us and Them: The Authorized Story of Hypnosis, and my guest has been Mark Blake. So good having you on the show. I need to get you back to talk about the Who. That's brilliant. Thank you. Thanks very much for having us again. My pleasure. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Monday, Nate and Ed Legg will be back with more discussion of Michelangelo Matos' book, Can't Slow Down, How 1984 Became Pop's Blockbuster Year. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 